I didn't have to use my GPS to find this church this morning. I got to sleep in my own bed last night. I get to be among my friends. It's so good to be with you. If I don't know you, I do rejoice that you're new at Servants of Christ. I'm, I'm glad to see that there are faces that I haven't seen before because that reminds me and reminds all of us that the work of the Lord is being done in this place and continues to be done. And it doesn't revolve around a person. It revol- it, well, it does revolve around a person, just not me. It revolves around the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done in all of our lives. Uh-oh, people are already leaving. That's not a good sign. <laughs> He'll be back. I'm going to baptize him in a little bit. So this morning, I I bring you greetings from the Gulf Atlantic Diocese Synod. I got to be with our our Synod representatives, delegates um, over the last few days. I'm I'm a little tired, but the Holy Spirit is going to invigorate me and help me give me strength as I'm with you today. But seeing your faces is just a joyful thing. I just want to just to begin by, by turning your attention to that Ephesians passage we heard and, and that Tony read to us because it, it reminds us of this, the seal of the Holy Spirit that Paul talks about. And I just want you to know that there, for a long time in my life, I thought what it, when it said the seal of the Holy Spirit was like, a, it was like the savings bond your grandparents gave you, right? My grandfather gave me a savings bond. It was worth $1,000. He said, here... In 20 years, this will be worth $1,000. You know, hang on to this deposit, the seal. And it's this, it's this thing that doesn't really have any benefit. And, and so for a long time, I thought that's what it meant, that the Holy Spirit was the seal upon us. But, but what I've come to realize is that not the seal is, it's not, a, it's not a seal, it's not like a promissory note. In fact, the seal of the Holy Spirit is the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And as we see the Holy Spirit working in our lives and we hear the testimony that Jesus has been raised from the dead, these two things enliven our faith. The fact, the truth that Christ died and rose from the dead is the historical fact, the truth by which we stand. But the the Father has also sent the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to be that seal, to be that evidence. And let me tell you that over the last two months of being the bishop of this diocese, Jody and I have experienced the outpouring of the work of the Holy Spirit over and over and over again in miraculous ways that the Lord has has smoothed paths and worked things out in small details and small ways. And it all culminated in the, the... clergy retreat we had on Thursday to Friday and and then into the Synod Friday to Saturday. It it was as if we were on a Holy Spirit conveyor belt and the Lord was just pulling us along. I think the reason why I was elected bishop is because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt there is no way I can actually do the work of the bishop unless the Holy Spirit works in me. It's not false humility. I just am not sure I'm up for the challenge. And yet that allows the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you know the famous story of D.L. Moody, uh, one of the evangelisms of a previous uh, century. There was a reporter, because they had heard all that was going on in D.L. Moody's ministry. So there was a reporter that was sent to find out exactly what's going on with all this. What's this all this, this you know, about? And so the reporter went and he spent time with D.L. Moody. And at the end of the time, he said, basically, 
there is nothing about this man that is extraordinary. There is absolutely no human reason why any of the things that are going on should be happening. Clearly, this is the work of God. Amen? May that be said of our lives. I think Christianity gets in trouble when we make it about people rather than about the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit that's poured out the seal, the promise that what he has done in the resurrection he will bring about in our lives and ultimately bring about when he takes us into glory with him at the end of time. That is what I come to proclaim with you this morning. Well, I want to look with you just a moment um, and at, this, at these verses from, uh, from Ephesians chapter 1 with you. Well, let's just talk about that. Let's set up this exciting day that we've got. We've got baptisms. We've got confirmations. We've got receptions. Uh, we have stories to tell of what the Lord is doing. But I want to remind us of what Paul says. Paul actually begins in a glorious praise chorus at the end of chapter 1 there. Well, actually not the end. Chapter 1, verse 11. He begins a doxology of praise and glory to the Lord. And basically what, what Paul says is that we get to be to the praise of God's glory. What he's doing in us gets to result in his glory. Now, that may seem strange, especially to us 21st century people who, who think and been, we've been taught that we have to find our own identity, to be our own selves, to, to be our person in the world, to carve out who we are, our own persona for the world, and, and we can create that by ourselves. And yet, we are told in Scripture that, in fact, the, the goal of life is counterintuitive. We are, in fact, supposed to be bringing glory not to ourselves, but to the Lord. And we can go through lists of contemporary people, athletes and, and famous folks that, that no matter how much glory they receive, it seems to be a bottomless pit. And they can never get enough. And so they go and they go and they go until finally they crash, right? And it all ends. Because to glory in ourselves is to ultimately lead to our own destruction, it's counterintuitive, like many of the things that are in the scriptures this morning. I mean, think about it. In Revelation, we're told that these, these martyrs, this multitude that's uncountable, that they, they, they wash their robes in blood and are made white. That makes no sense whatsoever. It's counterintuitive. And, and Jesus talks about those who weep are actually more blessed than those who laugh. Well, what do you mean, Lord? I mean, it's better to be poor than to be rich. It's better to, to, to be hungry than to be full. It's better to be excluded than to be revered. I mean, what, what's going on here? All these things are counterintuitive to us. But that's the way of the kingdom of Jesus, it comes in a way, and, and in fact, by bringing glory to the Lord, to God, we're actually blessed. We get to be a part of his glory. He actually, it says in Zephaniah, he sings over us. He sings praise over us who have brought praise and glory to him. This morning, to these, especially these young people that are, that are coming to be confirmed, I want to encourage you to really press into what it means to bring glory to God in your lives. Because everything, education, career, even sometimes our families will try to press you into 
seeking your own glory. But it's, it's a dead end. But bringing glory to God results in the fullness of life. Someone has said that whatever we give ourselves to is what we become. Nothing but God can bear the weight of all the attention, which is really what that word glory means. It's, it's that weight, it's the heaviness, it's the what is most important. The only thing that can bear up under the weight of being the glory of your life is God himself. Because God himself is able to take in that attention, that praise, that glory, and then use it to bless us through himself. Paul begins in glorious praise of the Lord because of what God has done and the seal of the Holy Spirit, the inheritance he talks about. Then Paul continues by entering into prayer and we get privileged, we are privileged to read what Paul says as a prayer to, over this church of Ephesus. It's his, Ephesus is now in the modern uh, Asia Minor. Think about modern Turkey. That's where Ephesus was, relate, where, was located. And Paul is now praying over this church that he's helped to establish at Ephesus. And he begins to pray over them. Prayer being that communication with God of speaking out to the Lord and listening to hear what he has to say for us. I pray that each of you who are being confirmed will develop a prayer life. That you'll find space and time to be quiet and silent before the Lord. And listen to hear what he has to say to your life. Because he wants to speak to you. And he will speak to you. But he won't compete with all the things that we do to distract ourselves. He waits for us to come in silence. And to ask him to speak. And in that Paul says he begins to pray over the church. And what does he pray? He prays that they will know God more fully. More completely. Part of our worship is turning in prayer and listening to how the Lord will reveal himself to us. How will the Lord reveal himself to us today? How will he speak to us through the, through the words and through the music and through the testimony and through the, the display of the body of Christ that you're going to see here in a little bit? How will he do that? Are we listening to hear how God wants to make himself known today? Paul goes on to say three things. We can't unpack them. I, I got a little overwhelmed. I thought, Lord, how am I supposed to unpack this? And he said, you don't have to hit every piece of this, Alex, because you could honestly preach on this for like hours and days and weeks. This Ephesians 1 is so theologically deep and rich that you really could spend a ton of time unpacking it all. But let me hit a few high moments here. Paul says three things. He wants them in the fullness of knowing him or knowing him more fully. Paul prays that in his prayer that they would understand the hope that they've received in Christ. If there's anything the world needs, it's a sense of hope. When we feel as if life will always be this cyclical, never-ending cycle, we do it and then we do it again and then we do it again and then we die. When that becomes our reality we lose hope and it is a dangerous thing to lose hope Paul says I pray that you would know the hope that you have in the Lord that you would know the hope for which he's called you that the God of the universe has called you into a relationship with him 
that he cares about your life, that he longs to be with you and to direct you through all of the turmoil of life. Secondly, he says he prays that they would have an understanding of the riches of the glorious inheritance they have in the saints. What we experience in the Holy Spirit is simply a foretaste of what's to come. We have been given the riches of eternity. And we get to experience a foretaste of it now. But what is for us is waiting on us. C.S. Lewis says that we'll look back and see that, that all of the joys of this life were but the, for, the preface, the, the, the title page of the great novel that will be our life. And that all that the Lord has in store for us. And then thirdly, Paul says, I pray that you would know the power, the power towards us who believe according to that great might that's in him. But not power to rule or manipulate or overpower others, but rather the power to have the strength to walk through all of the difficulties of life, to walk the way of the suffering. You see, the riches of eternity that we're given in Christ, our position in him, the relationship we have in him, compels us to begin to identify with those around us who are suffering and are weak and are hungry and are excluded. Which is what I think that, what I think that Luke is talking about when he begins to contrast the, 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 the Beatitudes there. and Those are blessed who are, who are, uh, who are weak. And, and, and those who need to be careful who are strong and, and the, laughing, the laughing and the weeping and the, and the hungry and the fed, it's, it's all because, it's, again, it's that counterintuitive desire to be with those who are hurting or in pain or excluded. So seeking out of justice, not for ourselves but for others. In short, it's the power to identify with a God who did not, stay in eternity, but came into creation. It came to be a part of us, to be one of us, to suffer alongside of us, that he would know the pain of our lives and the pain of your lives. And I'm still getting your prayer requests. I'm on the prayer chain. And I know that the troubles of life have continued. And yes, we have the hope that one day he will dry every tear. He'll wipe every face. But in the midst of that, he continues to give us the power to walk the way of suffering with Christ and with others. And in that, we find a joy. A joy that we couldn't expect. Paul begins with worship. He continues with prayer that the church at Ephesus would know these things, hope and the riches and the power. And he centers on Jesus. Ultimately, Paul comes to that verse 
in, in the reading where he turns to our Lord Jesus and the work that he's done, that he worked in Christ Jesus, all that he accomplished, the hope, the riches, the power, it's all possible because of that which Christ has done in us. Not because of anything that we have done to deserve it, not because of any obedience, not because you're getting confirmed or baptized or received or, or um, yeah, I got them all, right? Refer, yeah, yeah, I got them all. Not for any of that, but for what Christ has done in us. What he has done in us, when he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Paul comes to the center of which is Jesus, which has to, Jesus has to be the center of all that we do. And as I've lived living into this world of being a bishop, I'm finding more and more the need to keep falling upon the work and person of Jesus Christ in my life. At my consecration, there were, um, there were three pastor friends from Gainesville that came to be a part of the, of the uh, celebration. And it's funny because um, two of them go to the, are E-free pastors and one is a Presbyterian, but he's a, a, a low church Presbyterian doesn't wear any robes or anything. And so let's just say they weren't dressed necessarily in uh, cathedral attire, okay? Um, I, I can't remember exactly what they were wearing, but it, you know, it was, you know, it wasn't like, they weren't like in t-shirt, you know, they weren't, wear, they weren't wearing their gator t-shirts for, thank goodness. They were wearing, you know, they were wearing, you know, decent clothes, but they weren't wearing, you know, nice clothes. They, but they were there and I was, I was so excited to see them. And so I had failed in my shortcomings. I had failed to say, by the way, if you come, I'd like you to process with the other clergy and be up front. And so I didn't even think to me, and I was just so glad to see him. I said, you guys, I'm so glad you're here. I want you to stand right here, and I want you to process in with all the clergy. And kind of because they were caught up in the moment, I guess, you know, again, you know, low church, Presbyterian, E-free type people, they, they really didn't know what to do. And so what, they just kind of fell in line. And before they knew it, they were processing with, if you've seen the pictures, all these clergy in robes and regalia and bishops and miters and copes and croziers and just this whole thing and it was just fabulous and amazing and overwhelming and the Holy Spirit was there and here were these three guys that weren't dressed appropriate who were put in this conspicuous place on the front row right off the main area where I was being consecrated which was lovely for me because I could see them they were sitting about where David's sitting and so I could see them the whole time they were right there, and I just loved seeing them. And I didn't care what they were wearing. Well, one of those pastors has written an article for his church. He's going to distribute it this week, so I'm stealing the story completely from him. But it, it's such a gospel story because what he says, his name is Steve, what Steve says is, he said, we were someplace that we didn't belong. We weren't dressed appropriately. We weren't properly credentialed. We had no business being there except for one fact. We knew somebody. We knew somebody. They knew me. And I had said, I want you to process and I want you to go forward. But we know Christ. Christ and by what he's done on his cross and through his resurrection he has said 
you belong in the line. You get to come with me. You get to be a part of this. I've done this for you. I've given you all this hope, all these riches, and all the power to walk through this life in fellowship with me. Paul begins with worship. He continues with prayer. He centers on Jesus. He includes the body. Look at how Paul says it, and then I'm done. But look how Paul ends it. He says, and he put all things under his feet, that is Jesus' feet, and gave him head to be head, and gave him his head above all things to the church. Now that doesn't mean the church is ruling. That means Jesus is ruling. But notice that we are included. The church is with Jesus because he says in the final verse of his prayer that we are his body. He who is the fullness of all things that fills all has included us. We get to be a part of the body of Christ. We get to be with him. We as the church are in the mix. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. And because we know him, we get to be a part. This is an exciting day. You're going to see the church in, 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 in its glory, which we turn back to Jesus and we say, Lord, it's all about your glory. But, but we get to be a part of it. I think sometimes people get confused. The church isn't the kingdom of God, but the church is Jesus' chosen instrument to bring about the kingdom, to bring people into the kingdom. And you're going to get to see some evidence of, of that today, how the church has worked. Let me just tell you really quickly what you're going to see here. We're going to baptize three children. Two of those children come from a young woman who grew up in this church and whom we've had a relationship, Blair Grace Gary. Now Hardgrave. The hardest thing about being a pastor in one place for a long time is you got to remember not only the maiden name, but then you got to transfer to the, to the married name. But how wonderful to have somebody who went to Camp Araminta and Dynamos and was a part of youth ministry here and was nurtured in the faith through her baptism in the congregation and, and now is bringing forth her children along with her husband to, to have them baptized. We've also been trying to do this for like an, over a year. So it's kind, of a, it's kind of a praise God. The first thing I asked was, are we, are, we baptizing, are we baptizing Blair's kids today? Yes, we are. Very good. Awesome. We're also baptizing a little, a little boy whose parents have come across the world from Nigeria. N.K. and Naranzi have come to be a part of us and a part of this fellowship. They've come to work in the medical community and, and they want to be a part of the body of Christ that's here as servants of Christ. And so I had gotten to know them before I left. And so they said, well, maybe we can work it out so that when you come back as bishop, you can baptize our new baby, which was still in utero, by the way, was not even born. And I said, yes, let's do that. And so here we are today. So we're going to baptize this one who's a part, these two who are a part of the global body of Christ and have now come to be a part of this fellowship. Two tongues and tribes. Pretty cool. We're also going to baptize a young man who, who's coming as a young adult and saying, I want to be a follower of Christ. Cool. 
And, and he didn't, you know, he, he's, he, he hasn't been around forever. He didn't grow up in this church. And yet he has found a living faith in Christ and wants to be baptized to say that he's a part of Christ's body. But, but not only that, that Christ has included him, has put him in the procession. We're also going to confirm some kids. Some of them I baptized, which is pretty cool. One of them who's here because a friend invited him. And even though he came for a different reason, he stayed because he found something that was real. And then we're going to confirm, we're going we're gonna to receive. <laughs> so I knew there was another one. We're going to, we're actually, we're going to renew vows, but we, we're going to receive a young lady who's been walking faithfully with the Lord and has decided that she wants to make the Anglican church her tribe and this her local parish. So we're going to receive Gretchen in. And then we're going to receive in Betsy. Where's Betsy? Betsy, who's a sister from, a, 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 from another diocese, another part of the country. And it wants to, wants to again, to, to sort of recommit herself and to commit herself to this local body by, by reaffirming her baptismal vows and saying, I want to continue in faithfulness to Christ. And she's, she's saying, I want to do that in a sacramental way, in a way that will show the world that I'm, that I want to be a part of this body and the ministry that God's doing here. Friends, this is, this is Paul's prayer being answered. We're not answering the prayer of the kids that are out there crying, but, but we're praying Paul's, we're answering Paul's prayer because we are included. We always center in worship. We always have to seek the Lord through prayer. We have to be centered in Jesus but we get to be a part. And I get to be a part of you, even if I'm not with you and Jody and I are not with you. We get to see what you're doing and rejoice in what the Lord's doing in your midst. Amen? Let's bring these kids up. Let's bring these adults up. Let's celebrate what God is doing through Christ in this church. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.